From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. Russia has a history of extraordinary secrecy over its wartime losses. When it invaded Ukraine, senior correspondent Olga Ivshina of the BBC, with the help of partners and volunteers, began meticulously verifying and counting Russian losses. Olga and her team's work has so far identified more than 25,000 named individuals, setting a bare minimum of Russian casualties. Their work provides hard evidence of the war's impact on Russian forces and has brought answers to many grieving families. Olga's report sheds light on the changing face of the Russian army and the human cost of this conflict. In this episode, EBU's Moscow bureau chief, Kate Dupuri, speaks with BBC senior correspondent Olga Ivshina about their remarkable investigation. Let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background as a BBC journalist and how you came to work on this project, which compiles information about Russia's death toll in the war in Ukraine. So I have been working with the BBC since uh, 2012, so it's more than 10 years now. And you know, back then when I joined, it just seemed like another job offer, <laughs> another job vacancy, but it turned out to be a life-changing decision. I didn't know it back then. I, I don't regret it, but uh, it just tells you, I think, a lot um, about how Russia have, have changed in the last 10 years. Back then, I just worked for my original TV station in Russia, in Kazan, city of Kazan back then. And I just decided I want to try something more ambitious and um, applied for a position in BBC Moscow Bureau. And I was taken as a producer doing night shifts <laughs> or early shifts, writing news. But then I sort of climbed through the ranks. And um, I have been covering Russia and um, sort of Russia-related stories since 2012 for BBC. Since 2013, I have been covering events in Ukraine as well, both for BBC News and BBC World Service for the global audience. I have witnessed a revolution in Maidan Square and just straight from there with the last train I went to Kiev and then again straight from Kiev with one of the last trains I went to Donetsk in eastern Ukraine in spring of 2014. And once again, it never, back then, it never felt as a life-changing moment for me, but it definitely was. Uh, it affected myself very much, both professionally and personally. I received some threats. Me and my colleagues we were put under significant pressure a number of times. We were threatened a number of times. This story, this change of story, this this chain of stories affected me quite significantly. Olga, let me ask you, how do you think your experience covering Russia when, from when you first joined in 2012, has led you to understand the importance of compiling a death toll? Uh, it's actually not, not that much my experience as a reporter, but my experience sort of as a human being, as a Russian citizen, in my free time for the past 12 years during my holidays, I have been uh, going on uh, archaeological expeditions uh, 
trying to recover bodies of uh, World War II soldiers who went missing in action during the World War II, and uh, thousands of them are still unaccounted for. This is something I think a lot of about. So when this invasion has started, I just thought about it again. You know, we still don't know the full scale of Soviet losses during the World War II. We still don't know the full scale of uh, Soviet losses during um, and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we still don't know the full scale of uh, Russian losses during two wars in Chechnya. There are official figures, but figures supplied by the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers, a Russian NGO, is two times higher than the official figures. And just from my personal experience, from what I have seen on former battlefields, I do see that there is a pattern there. So when this invasion has started, I thought, it might be the case again. That's why it's very important to try to track down as many names as we can. So the fact that you know you have this cultural history, the fact that you're Russian means that you get it. And so from day one, you thought to yourself, we need to start keeping account. Can you tell us about those first few days after the invasion? Well, I guess those days were shock for everyone and, of course, shock for, for myself, for my colleagues at the BBC Russian service, to all my colleagues in London and in Ukraine, in Russia. These were very hectic days, but, yeah, back then, my colleague and myself, we thought that it's very important to try to keep track of those names which were mentioned by the Russian press back then to somehow compile this information together. Because the first official report about Russian losses came early in March by the Russian Ministry of Defense, and they said that it's around 500 soldiers who died. And it was hard to believe those figures back then, because we, we have seen that this was a large-scale offensive, that tremendous amount of troops was, was thrown into the battle. Russians were uh, conducting risky operations. A lot of airborne troops were used. So one could assume that there were significant losses, but... To avoid speculation, we thought we need to start tracking down those names. We just manually were searching for those names, putting it all together, trying to get as much information about that people that we could to get better understanding of what was going on. When we put down our first report, it was published in the middle of May. First of all, we already had more names officially reported than a figure officially pronounced by the Russian Ministry of Defense. That's first. And secondly... We could see who those guys are, and we saw that many of them, around 20% of them, were paratroopers, and another 20% of them were officers. And again, that's very important, and, and that tells you a lot, uh, that Russian elite forces were thrown straight into the battle, and the fact that many officers were killed in action can hint that Russians were having troubles with communication on the battlefield, and those officers had to be directly on the front line, trying to navigate the troops, trying to make things happen on the battlefield. So it was actually telling a lot of stories about how Russian army is performing, what are the challenges, how it's organized, how it works, what doesn't work. And I think what's very important, these weren't estimates. These were solid facts taken out, those hundreds of stories put together. The way that you use the statistics to dig into the patterns of military decision-making and the understanding of where the Russian army was going wrong and who they were losing. I don't think that that was done by any other organization at that point so early in the war. Um, yes, um, 
Probably that's true. I mean, we, we I read some of those reports by British uh, intelligence or others later on. But I think that's the key point about this project. Different assessments provided by different institutions, US intelligence, British intelligence, etc. They're based on certain assumptions. They're based on intelligence. But our analysis is based on solid facts we gather. It's based on hundreds of stories we gather. And sometimes it tells you something, but sometimes it also debunks certain myths. That's very powerful, what you've just said. Uh, the whole difference between an intelligence report and a journalist's open source reporting. Uh, it's a critical difference. Can I ask you what kind of skills the reporters who do this work need? Well, first of all, I guess a lot of dedication. You know, it's, it's, since it was a very small team, Leon, so first it was just me and my colleague. A little bit later on, we were contacted by a team of volunteers who said they were doing the same and we decided to unite our forces. And a little bit later on, we were joined by a small team from Media Zona, a Russian independent media outlet. So first of all, it's a dedication. We're still a very small team and it takes a lot of time to find that information, to confirm it, to to fill in the graphs, uh, to be able to analyze it later on, for example, to understand which rank it was, where the person died, if that's reported, what branch of military they belong to. It, it can't be uh, automatized. It, it's all still done manually. So it's a lot of your time. And it's not easy psychologically as well, just going through that endless post. But uh, on the other hand, I think this project also taught us a lot on top of what we had, it gave me some knowledge, some additional skills as well. How do you verify the open source? Suppose you've got a report of a funeral service in a Russian provincial city, and that's on a local website. Is that source enough for you, or do you cross-check it? There are three main types of sources we use. First, are, as we call them, official sources. So it's statements by Russian officials. The only difference is at the beginning, these were mainly high rank officials who were reporting uh, military deaths. So these were head of the regions and Russian state affiliated press. So we never double check these reports because, you know, it's, it's people affiliated with the state who are reporting that. So that's a, that's a reliable source. And now there are still a lot of officials reporting those deaths. It's just the rank of the officials have become lower. So now it's mostly head of villages, uh, head of schools, head of local libraries. But we still treat those uh, reports as official reports because they are indeed affiliated with the state in this form or another. So we don't cross-check those reports. Also, there are still reports in... Uh, in Russian state-affiliated press, once again, it's, uh, we, we don't cross-check those reports. There are reports by local media. And since total majority of Russian independent journalists were forced out to leave the country, it's mostly, again, uh, media which operate openly. So uh, we think it's legitimate enough. If they report those deaths, we don't cross-check, we don't double-check it. Second type of sources are that information which we get from Russian cemeteries. And we currently get information from over 60 cemeteries in all over Russia, in, in different 
types, you know, villages, towns all over Russia, and also memorial plates at schools and monuments, and different types of small, big monuments all over Russia. This is a legitimate source. It does lack certain information. For example, we don't know where this person was killed. But on the other hand, it's easy to identify that this person was indeed killed in action in Ukraine. If we talk about Tom's, uh, you can see it always has a wrath either from Russian Ministry of Defense or from Wagner private military company. Many of them have pictures of uh, soldiers in uniform. And thirdly, we see the age and uh, the death date. So combined together, all those things sort of can easily help you verify whether this grave relates to someone killed in action in Ukraine or not. And the third set of sources are the trickiest, but also one of the most important ones, these mentions in the social media. So since the beginning, not all deaths were reported officially. Many relatives would post my beloved one was killed in Ukraine, please come, there would be funerals, etc. So if we see that it's definitely posting from a direct relative of, of that person, and for example, we see enough evidence, pictures from funerals, pictures of the medals, then we don't write to those people not to disturb them at those hard times. But if it's something tricky where when the correlation is less obvious, then, yeah, we would double check, we would message those persons just to double check they are writing about someone they know directly and it's not just, just rumors. Let's go back to that idea of school memorials because this is a really interesting thread. This shows us how deeply embedded, I think, the war and the losses already are at every level of society. Can you tell us a bit about the school memorials? I think this is a tradition which goes back uh, a few decades back. There are schools devoted to certain soldiers who died during the World War II, during the war in Afghanistan. And I think it's part of the state's effort to educate youth in certain direction. Because I think in a way that happened to me, I remember how neighbors, just guys from my household, were sent to Chechnya and killed in Chechnya, and I knew them as good senior guys, senior boys. And then there would be memorial plates opened in their honor at school, and you would think of them automatically as of heroes, because, you know, you know them, uh, that's the class they used to study, you can sort of relate to that. And for many years, all the guys who fought in Chechnya were heroes to me as a kid. So it took me quite a lot of time and effort to realize that that war in Chechnya wasn't that straightforward. So I only came to that understanding decades later when I was a grown-up. And I think that's exactly what's happening now. You know, for those kids, they, they're told stories of these brave soldiers defending their motherland. There are memorial plates being opened in their honor. And in some of the classes, you will have a table devoted to this or that guy who used to study in that exact classroom seat at that exact table. And I guess some of the kids can definitely relate to that and feel that connection to that person and probably, as a result, feel more sympathy towards this war. All these small indications of people who are dying in this war at local, at city level, it's all open source and it's all being compiled by your team. I mean, it's an astonishing task. Uh, it is a very hard task indeed, and here I would like to praise our team of volunteers who 
some of them uh, are based in Russia and they risk uh, their freedom to do that. And their help is essential. Unfortunately, I can't provide more details about them. I hope time will come when I will be able to talk openly about their impact, about their efforts to keep this project going. But at the moment, I can't just mention that their help is essential. The help is essential also in tracking down the names which are not reported officially. And this provides us crucial understanding of what is the real scale of the Russian losses. So currently in our database, we have the names and surnames of 21,000 Russian soldiers uh, killed in action in Ukraine. So then when we get access to Russian cemeteries all over Russia, we then see how many of those names which were reported officially, how this relates to what we see on the ground on those cemeteries. And what we see is that, you know, if you go to a particular cemetery in the town, you would see all those names which were mentioned by those regional press in that town. But on top of that, you would see the same amount of names which were never mentioned on social media or by journalists. And then you come to understanding how many names are we missing in our database. Does that lead you to extrapolate a proportion that you can apply across Russia or is it regional? Well, since we are able to monitor what's going on in different cemeteries all over Russia, from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok and from Arhangelsk in the north to Krasnodar in the south. Yes, we think that we get a general understanding of what's going on in the in cemeteries all over Russia. So this leads us to assumption that probably we're missing half of the names, so half of the total amount of Russian losses. I think that's the most conservative estimate. Because on top of that, you also get those who are missing in action, those who are unaccounted for. So um since you started doing the reporting and the monitoring over a year ago, the recruitment of prisoners by Wagner has happened. And you're obviously seeing a lot of deaths amongst them, particularly around Bakhmut and on the front. How do you assess the number of Wagner? Uh, well, yeah, first of all, that's the major killed? outcome, the major thing we got. Uh, we see after 14 months of that invasion that the face of the Russian forces has changed dramatically from the data we have. We see that at the start of this invasion, Russia mostly relied on its most elite units, which consisted of young, well-trained professionals. So it would be paratroopers, marines, on average of 22, 23 years old. Now the portrait of an average serviceman who's being killed in Ukraine is completely different. It's someone way older, 35, 40 years old, and also someone who had uh, no connection to the Russian military before the start of the invasion. That's also very important. It just shows you how much Russian forces have changed. And as you rightly said, currently it seems Russia heavily relies on convicts, but not only on units consisting of convicts, also on units consisted of recently mobilized servicemen and also units consisting of volunteers. And the majority of those volunteers are guys in the 40s, some in their 50s, who had just three, seven days of training before they were sent to the front line. And all that significantly affects performance of the Russian troops and again the amount of losses by the Russian troops. Coming back to convicts, currently we have names of over 3,500 convicts who died fighting in Ukraine. That's definitely not the 
whole amount of, of convicts who died. But this just gives you some some picture. And also we see how quickly their numbers are growing. At the moment, we have found at least seven cemeteries with dozens and dozens, in some cases, of hundreds and hundreds freshly dug graves of convicts who were buried there. And actually, on dozens of occasions, relatives of convicts will be writing to us telling we have zero information about our loved one. Do you know anything about them? So that just shows you the level of desperation that those families are writing to us, to journalists, saying, oh, you have that database. And they would be shocked because no one contacted them. And only through 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 journalists they found out where, that the, their relative was killed and he's buried somewhere in a completely different region of Russia. That's really interesting. First of all, it's interesting because I know that at the bottom of your story of the latest report in April, you've got a link uh, that allows people to contact you with any information. How can these families contact you safely? They can email to us. They can email to us. It's a safe way because our servers are not controlled by the, by the Russian state. And I think this tells you a lot about how things are organized. So despite the fact some of those convicts had their relatives, do have their families, relatives, and uh, they had them mentioned in the documents they signed, Wagner didn't bother calling them. And we had a few occasions when families weren't contacted, weren't informed properly. And after we publish our stories, suddenly they would be contacted and the cases would be resolved. I actually wanted to backtrack slightly, Olga. When we spoke earlier, you told me about a local TV report that you had seen of a boxing championship where before the championship fight began, the MC read out the names of club members who had been lost in the war. And it was a really big number, and their names were read out. Can you tell me then how you managed to track those people down? Yeah, it was actually a championship held in the owner of a certain unit. So behind the back of MC, so one of the walls was covered with a huge poster with a picture of all of those guys. So we had to just carefully go through all the photo and video footage available from that event, trying to read all the surnames and names. And that's cross-checking. I mean, the very fact that they were there in the open for a few days sort of confirms that it's a legitimate source of information. And we saw that certain people were laying flowers. As you already said, some of the comrades of those guys who were killed, they were giving speeches. So this verifies information. But also, of course, when we had the full list, we tried to cross-check the names. Some of them would appear in open source. For example, they participated in different exercises. Uh, some of the senior officers were giving short interviews to the press. So that's how we verify that, indeed, they do belong to that unit and most probably you know, the, all those names reported. And as far as I remember, it was more than 50. And that was elite Spetsnaz, so special service force. So that's quite a huge losses for a small unit of elite soldiers. Uh, yeah, that's how we verified it. Can I clarify, was that a press report or was it a social media post? It was mentioned in the press. It was mentioned in the sports news section by both local and regional state-affiliated media. And we just started from that. So I briefly saw that picture in federal news reports. And then 
I went to dig in deeper to some local media reports and then also to social media to get as many videos and pictures from the place as possible to be able to see all the names, you know, because in some reports you would grab one part of the billboard would appear in other pictures, the other part of the billboard. So that's how you build it all together to be able to read all the names and dates of birth, etc. Fascinating. Now, let's talk a bit about Media Zona, because they are a really interesting independent Russian news outlet, employing, I think, young and very digital uh, data-driven journalists. Can you tell us what skills they have brought to the partnership? Well, first of all, they're passionate young professionals, uh, very enthusiastic, which is crucial to that project, way more important than your IT skills. You just need that stamina to battle through to keep verifying. Uh, secondly, yes, they're very good with cross-checking. They find ways to find extra information, you know, in local media because not everything is indexed by, let's say, Google or Yandex. So sometimes you need to find some creative ways to to find those tiny Russian media outlets like a village newspaper, etc. They're also very good media zona guys. They are amazing at working with data. So. They build those algorithms to just to count, uh, just to analyze the raw data we have. For example, how many paratroopers were killed at a certain period of time, etc. So they have definitely better skills than I do in that, in how to analyze the raw data you have. I mean, uh, mechanically analyze. That's definitely their strong point. And also, you know, as journalists, we all have our own sources. So the more people you have, the more journalists you have working on the story, the more sources sort of you, you get who can provide you additional information, who can help you to uh, track down certain stories, to cross-check certain information, to understand more about certain formations, or sometimes you just need background, how things work, to be able to work with the data you have. Can I ask you about that use of data? And was that the critical tool that helped you to understand and debunk the myth? that it was mostly ethnic minorities that were lost in the first wave, at least. That was one of your big discoveries, I think, wasn't it? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I need to mention that this was done with the help of some serious uh, scientists. I mean, we have all the data, but they have a better understanding of how this analysis should be done, right, and how to check and prove all that. So, yeah, at the very beginning, as everyone else, we noticed that uh, the biggest amount of confirmed deaths are being reported by autonomous republics within Russia, Dagestan, Buryatia, so regions like that. But since we had that data set, we could look into surnames and actually see that not all of them are ethnic minorities who are ethnic majorities in those regions. And after we get a significant amount of data, so not a few hundreds, but a few thousands of cases all over Russia, then we just brought together all that data set and went to uh, experts in sociology, asking them to, to look into that data and to either prove or debunk this notion which was quite popular on social media. And after they have done some analysis, they actually proved that within those regions, it was actually uh, the majority of the losses were still ethnic Russians, even though, let's say, they come from Buryatia, they are still ethnic Russians. Uh, so what sociologists told us based on the data we collected, they said that on the one hand, yes, let's say someone from Tuva have 100 times more chances to die uh, fighting in Ukraine than someone from Moscow. 
But on the other hand, it seems that this discrepancy relates more to economic disparity of the regions rather than a conscious strategy to kill ethnic minorities. Uh, because if you look exactly at you know this um, list of names in each region, you can actually see that within those regions, it's more or less evenly distributed. And then if you analyze the situation in that particular region, you see that the regions who were reporting most deaths, especially at the beginning of the invasion, were those with a very low average income, were those where it's really hard to find a job if you are a young male just starting your career. Those regions where social lifts are not working properly. So it was almost inevitable that many young males there were signing up for an army because it provides you some career perspectives and uh, solid social guarantees and stable income. Now, things are getting tougher in Russia. The legal framework allows for less and less posting related to any information on the war. And people are increasingly frightened about speaking to journalists, especially foreign journalists. Are you finding that all of this is making your job more difficult? Yes, on the one hand, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems that war have galvanized Russian society. So there are two unequal camps, so to say, two unequal parts of that. But there is a part of Russian society which supports the war. And of course, they, many of them don't like talking to foreign media, to independent Russian journalists. There is also a part of Russian society which disagrees with the invasion, which harshly opposes it. And some of those people are actually more eager to talk to us, and they even approach us. So in the past, it would be always us writing to people, asking them to talk to us. And anyway, many would refuse because the authoritarian regime in Russia hasn't appeared just in 2022. It has been evolving for, for decades, I would say. So this was slowly, slowly becoming the case that people are afraid to talk to foreign journalists. But it seems now, because of the invasion, some people think that's it, that's the red line. You must talk now. You have to um, share information with the, with the independent media. So they would approach us. For example, there was a story which I still remember. So I saw a video being posted from one of the military units. So they had a memorial table to the servicemen killed in action, but it only had photographs of the guys killed. So I was screenshotting that video, each photograph, trying to then put a face to a name, trying to recognize those guys. And I managed to recognize one of the officers. And uh, I just mentioned him briefly in my report. And then suddenly, after the story was published on that form we mentioned earlier, I got contacted by a guy who said, I'm a close friend of that young officer. That's indeed true. He was killed. You have identified his rank and his unit correctly. Indeed, he was serving there. And he sent me a report about that officer in the local media, in the local newspaper, which was glorifying him. And he said, I really want to share his story because that's not all as black and white as the local media puts it. And since he's dead and he can't talk for himself, I want to tell his story. I want for him to be remembered as a more complicated guy. And he told me the story of a guy from a family which wasn't rich at all. And he, he was a young boy, a young lad, who was trying to provide to, to, to his family, who was trying to help his mom. And this was one of the reasons why he signed up with the military, why he went to a military university. And very early on, he realized that's not the thing he likes. 
but to get out, you need to pay for the uniform, you need to cover the expenses which state allegedly uh, had paid for your military education. You know, this is quite huge. This is more than the usual university because they do shootings, exercises, and so on. So it's quite a sufficient sum of money for a young lad to pay to get released. And he never managed to collect such a sum of money. So he continued serving and continued. And he showed me the chat where he spoke to that young officer, where he he thought how to get out, where he said that I really want to stop military service, but I'm anxious. Do you think I'll find myself in a civilian life? And as his friend said, you know, he he didn't have enough courage in him. Probably he didn't make his decision. Uh, but he paid for it with his life. So he was killed in Ukraine. Of course, this invasion is horrible. And of course, some of the Russian soldiers are committing war crimes in Ukraine. But it's not a black and white picture. This is a complicated story of an authoritarian country. It's a complicated story of ordinary citizens being put into extraordinary circumstances. And it doesn't justify their actions, but it explains why it happens. So, um, Olga, as I listen to you talking about this and this young man's story, everything that you're monitoring on a daily basis, the stories you've heard and the things that you're seeing, how does this affect you as a journalist and as a person? How do you ensure your well-being as you go through this project? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I think I would only realize it after it's over. At the moment, it's a little bit, you know, just we just need to keep going. And each time I I feel heavy-hearted, each time I feel I'm exhausted, I just think, you know, if we we won't keep doing it, no one else would. No one else is counting and verifying those deaths. There are certain different projects, but some of them rely on unconfirmed data. So no one is cross-checking uh, information as meticulously as we do. So we just need to keep the going, I think. Uh, but also that feedback we get from, from relatives, from just ordinary people who send us information or who just respond to you, who, who just comment on our stories, it helps to keep pushing. And also, I guess, I was covering this war on the ground since 2014, and in a way, the biggest shock for me was back then. It's not getting easier. This is a horrible war. People are being killed every day on a tremendous scale. But in a way, it's, it's just easier to adapt. After everything I have seen myself and experienced myself in a war zone, I guess I'm a little bit better prepared for what I'm encountering, as opposed to some people for whom this is the first war they are involved in that they are living through for me it's it's it has started eight years ago so i think i have just a little bit more tools and systems in place than some other people olga thank you very much for sharing all of that with us it's fascinating and particularly what you've said about how do you document what the kremlin is doing to its own people only by having the kind of structure that you're providing where you've got the death toll and then hanging on that all the stories that you're hearing. It's amazing work. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. It's, it's a privilege to be able to, to talk about that. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Bonnesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.